I'm here with Carl Siegler, who is the publisher of Talon Books, a Canadian literary press that was established in 1963 yeah. in Vancouver. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you. As I mentioned prior to our meeting on microphone, one of the things that, that I'm doing with the radio program is exploring all of the different roles that uh, people play in the book publishing sector, if you will. And so your role as the publisher of a literary press, what do you do? Well, I have to, I have to go back beyond my role because, of course, there's a tradition, and I'm one of those people who can't speak of anything out of context. And so my understanding of the publishing process, what is a publisher? A publisher is someone who makes public. So the most crucial job for a publisher in any medium, and there are music publishers, it's not restricted to language, so the question is, okay, what is that that you're making public? If you have decided to specialize in literature, and particularly in, in my case, in what is often referred to as serious literature, right? not entertainment literature, genre fiction, highbrow. Uh, but thoughtful text in a number of different genres, poetry, fiction, drama, and nonfiction, serious nonfiction, critical nonfiction. It's often called creative nonfiction. So what I do as a publisher is I take the texts of my authors in these genres as I've defined them, and my job as a publisher is to make them public. Not a profit. Well, n no. Some publishers do that. I mean, some publishers make texts public uh, to make a profit. Um, I would say that if that were my ambition, I definitely have chosen the wrong field of books and literature. I understand that Harlequin Romance and a number of other genre fiction providers in, say, the world of, by what I mean by genre fiction is historical romance, uh, mystery novels, uh, novels of international intrigue, like Robert Ludlum, for example, mm. Harlequin Romance. I mean, there are, are a number of different kinds of genre fiction that are published purely for the purposes of entertainment. Just because they're so popular, they make exactly. a huge amount of money. Beca because the books actually are written for an audience. Mm -hmm. They're not written to an audience, but for an audience. Ours are written to? Yes, definitely. Yeah. So a prescriptive... No, I'm not. Uh, by saying they're written to an audience, I, I, I don't mean they're prescriptive. But what I mean is that the books that we publish tend to have a very unique voice. They're unconventional. Mm -hmm. And so in that sense, they are not written to satisfy conventional expectations. The, the analogy in music is, is you go out and, and, and you listen to a concert you know, a jazz concert or something, or you go to some place, you're, you're in a tavern or a bar or something, and there's a really esoteric band playing, mm -hmm. you know, and then the classic shout from the crowd, play something we know, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Because the, what they are hearing is putting them out of their comfort zone. This is not what they, they expected. It. They, and yeah. they didn't expect it. And they're, they're not coming here to learn something new or to experience something new. They're coming here to relax. And mm -hmm. so part of the whole relaxation process, I suppose, or the leisure process, is to surround yourself with things that make you feel comfortable and unchallenged, mm -hmm. right? The voices that I publish in all four genres are unique. Mm -hmm. They are, a, a, at some level, even unsettling. 
although not intentionally so. They're, they're not written to confront people. They're original. Yes. And that's what you look for. It's exactly what I you look for. You don't look for what you think is great, you look for what is original? Well, I don't think it's that simple because, of course, I, I think I would look at it the other way around. I look for things that are great, and one of my criteria for greatness is originality. And I am I'm very, very, very sensitive to language as a process and as an artistic medium. It's a, the, the American poet Charles Olson once said that the number of original ideas that humanity has ever had mm. could be written on the back of a postage stamp. Mm. So it's not about really what you're saying, yeah. it's about how you're saying it. Plato came up with most of them. Exactly. So what I'm looking for always is, is a voice that uses text as a medium um, and that expands the boundaries of text, the conventional boundaries of text, and manage to say things with language that haven't ever quite been said that way before. So you're not going to make a profit doing that? No. I'm not but you're going to, I mean, uh, to get back to that, your objective is to keep the doors open so you can keep doing this. And Precisely, and that's where the money comes in. I, I'm not in business to make a profit. Mm -hmm. I am in business, and I am. I have to say, you know, I mean, I guess the record speaks for itself. We're still in business. We've never gone bankrupt. We've never been taken over. Talon is a, a long succession of internal mentorship in terms of the people who've been running it. So my objective has always been to make at least enough money to earn the privilege to continue doing what I'm doing and to continue doing what I love, which is to introduce the world and, and a readership to new voices, to new ways of seeing things, to new, to new ways actually of saying things. Mm -hmm. But there has to be some kind of a popular appeal in order for you to make enough money to stay, stay alive. Well, you see, that, that's, a, that's a very common dialectic that's used in publishing discussions, and it's not one that I believe in, actually, because uh, my definition of a publisher, and in terms of where the conversation's going, like the technology of the book, I think it's very important for me to establish early that I've already said what a publisher does is to make things public, but beyond that, I have a very, very strong sense of a publisher as playing a certain kind of social function or role. And that is, in my view, all publishers mediate discourse. Mm -hmm. Now, what I mean by that is that I think the world is made up of, of many, many, many communities of discourse. The most obvious ones are different language groups. And then within language groups, you get certain sort of geographically and historically dialects, versions of that language. Uh, within the dialect, you have certain interest groups who develop a specific vocabulary of your own, which is often like colloquially referred to as jargon. Lawyers speak legalese, for mm -hmm. example, right? To keep the uh, the unwashed out. Well, yes, it, 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 that's part of its function. And, and, and part of the other function is a consensus on what words and language mean. And that consensus is always community-based. So what I mean by publishers being mediators of discourse is that what publishers tend to do is they tend to take certain kinds of voices in a cultural community and connect those voices with like voices in the community. And the whole process of creating books and publishing books is always the same. What varies by publisher's specialty, usually defined by a publisher's specialty, is simply the size of the community of discourse being mediated. 
I mean, my job as a publisher is to connect the texts of my authors with readers who are going to get something out of that text, for whom that text is going to be particularly important and meaningful in their lives in terms of what they are bringing to the reading experience. So, for example, Tamil books would never publish a genre fiction book. Let's look then at the criteria that you would use to determine greatness. One is originality. Do you actually read all of the manuscripts that come through the door? Absolutely, yes. Yeah, I'm the only editor. I read all the manuscripts and I edit them all. So you're you're a publisher and an editor. We're talking about two different roles, but you're assuming both of them. What else do you use? Well, I have a background, actually, as, as a social activist. And so one of the things I'm looking for all the time is an original text that deals in some way, either implicitly or explicitly, with social issues. Now, because most of our list is fictional, poetry, fiction, and drama, when it comes to literary texts like that, what I'm looking for is a way of seeing the world that will encourage the reader that encounters that text to think about their role in the world from a position of social economy, of class, of ethnicity, of spirituality, So I'm looking for works of fiction that encourage people to think about their place in the world, their place in society, their place on the planet. And because of the encounter with that text, actually take the encounter seriously enough so that if they learn something or experience something new, either negatively or positively, they come away from the text saying, gee, why do I do that? Or why don't I do this? And that's Mm -hmm. a really good idea. and eventually act, I would assume. And eventually act on it, mm. exactly. In, in whatever way they choose, mm. because I seek only to, as a publisher, uh, with that objective in mind, I'm only looking to offer people new alternatives. Kind of a catalyst for change, exactly. but also presenting options. Absolutely. Right. The more imaginatively an author can imagine human relationships, sexual family-related, social relationships, economic interactions, philosophical concepts of the world, political stances. I'm always looking for work that people can come away from the reading experience questioning their role in all of those different kinds of human interactions. So it's really content that is the key driver, opposed to the way the content is packaged. Well, not exactly. I I mean, I don't think of the material in our books as content. It's one of the things, I suppose, that makes Talon a bit unique, because I really do think of what's in our books as language, as text. And in fact, just last night, I went to a reading. I quite commonly, when I introduce my authors at public events, the most common phrase I use when I get up and and they want to know something about me as a publisher, like, what am I doing here? what does Talon do before I introduce one of Talon's specific authors. The phrase I use most often is, I don't publish authors, I publish texts. And so for me, uh, the subject of our books becomes almost irrelevant. I was just at a lecture on Shakespeare, and there are some scholars that say that the performance of Shakespeare, the performance takes away from the text. Well, that's an odd reversal. That's a really odd reversal. And but and Hamlet is brilliant, and I tend to agree with it. Hamlet is brilliant because it's a reading experience, and no troupe of actors can do justice to what's in the text. 
You see, it's very curious that you should say that because Talon actually is known most for its playlist. Half our list is drama, but half our list annually, half our production is plays. And Talon has an interesting editorial rule about publishing plays that no other Canadian publisher has to my knowledge, and that is that I insist, I absolutely insist, that we will not publish a play unless it has had at least one major professional, not amateur, production. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is that statistically, believe it or not, the difference between an author putting down his or her pen and finishing the literary script, the play script for the theater, the difference between that and what you end up seeing on stage after it's been professionally produced and the text undergoes the, the collaborative work of a director and the actors, all the stage technicians and so on, because of course the text is really a script for a public performance. The, the average rate of change between the finished literary script and what you finally see on stage is 20%. It's very high. And I'm very aware with our playlist that our authors create their scripts not as literary texts, but as vehicles for public performances. Personally, I find reading Hamlet probably more, and discussing it, more exhilarating than watching the performance. Well, uh, yes. I mean, I, c I can see what you're saying. Because you can spend time with the words and really appreciate them. Well, actually, going back to what we said before, when you consider that the reading experience is always a synthesis of the meaning of the text and countering what the reader is bringing to that text, when I listen to you say things like that about plays, my mind immediately thinks of that contingency, of that encounter of the reader with the text, because of course every performance of, of Hamlet will be determined by First of all, what the director brings to yeah. it, how the director sees it, and then how the director directs his actors to mm -hmm. play the different roles. Nuances. And exactly. Mm -hmm. And then beyond the director's overall vision, which results from whatever he or she has brought to their encounter with the text, there's the overall vision. And then within that vision, of course, are the individual actors who all bring their own experience to the encounter of the role that they're playing, which is encoded in the text. Mm -hmm. And so when you go to the theater to see a play, what you are really watching is the result of a certain kind of reading of that text. Not yours. Not yours, exactly. Mm -hmm. So there is a way in which you can read plays and drama as literary texts, bring your own life to that encounter, and get something out of it, which is quite different from what a director and his or her actors may have staged for you the night before. So in that sense, plays are literary texts like all writing, and there is great value actually in reading them. And buying the texts from Talon and uh, yeah. the other uh, publishers that to work with plays, and in effect put on their own play in their own mind. Exactly, mm -hmm. because all the characters are there. You're reading mm -hmm. the script, right? Yes. So you Im you're imagining the circumstances mm -hmm. and the personal encounters and conflicts and resolutions and so on. So if we look at the other criteria then, you've spoken to originality, you've spoken to catalysts and options for a person to change their worldview and act on it. Anything else? I would say those would be the, the two most important ones. Next question then is, who does this to the greatest degree within your list? 
four years? Well, that that's a question I think that really is unanswerable because I have never published a book that I don't completely believe in. Because if I don't completely believe in the book or what the book is trying to do, what the text is trying to achieve, I don't publish it. I mean, there are no shortages of books to publish. My list, for example, I mean, I'm limited, of course, by the size of my company, our budget, and our market, and so on. So right now, I mean, the company is growing incrementally, very slowly. We're up to about 26 new books a year. Uh, last year, we did 57 reprints. So our books have lasting value. You know, they're not, they're, our books don't follow any intellectual fashion of the day. They are clearly very important and stimulating texts. So I have no shortage of books to publish. In fact, I'm, I'm dismayed that my list of projected publications is already full, given our resources, the limitation of our resources only, to the end of 2011. In that situation, of course, for reasons of expediency alone, you would be inclined to be very selective about what you agree to publish because yeah. you're telling the author, well, maybe this might come out in the spring of 2012, <laughs> and the author is saying to you, well, I think I better try another publisher. It'll publisher's. be stale by then. Yeah, right. Yeah. So uh, I have the luxury of, of being incredibly critical and selective and discerning about what I publish. And so I tend to be committed to every book. Now, having said that... Good, because that was my, my next right. prod. There must be some, if not a hierarchy, there must be some works that have spoken to your own experience to a greater degree than the others. Yes, and, and, and curiously enough, well, not curiously enough, given my background, every publisher, of course, has their handful of books that they are most proud of having published. Mm -hmm. I'm totally committed to everything I publish, without question. I have the luxury of being able to afford to do so. But then there are books, I think, that have had a greater impact on mm. society than others. Indian Myths and Legends of the, the North Pacific Coast of America, which is a literal translation of Franz Boas's first fieldwork in the Pacific Northwest with the Native peoples. Now, he did that fieldwork in the 1890s. And the fieldwork was published in a German ethnographic journal in sections and then collected eventually and then published in book form. Now, Franz Boas is a very, very famous sort of anthropologist, ethnographer, and so on. He's considered by many the source of Pacific Northwest Coast studies and so on. How do you spell his last name? B-O-A-S. And he's a German scholar who ended up working in New York. And I... I made an agreement with a research group in BC called the BC Indian Language Project, which is run by uh, Dorothy Kennedy and Randy Bouchard. They did a lot of fieldwork and are still doing a lot of ethnographic fieldwork in the Pacific Northwest. I signed a deal with them in 81 to publish Franz Boas's original fieldwork, which is written in German. Did they have the copyright or something? Yes, they got the copyright from the estate, and they hired a translator to translate the work into English. But then, Franz Boas used to be like the great hero of the anthropological and ethnographic community. He's considered like one of those major figures, right, sort of unassailable. But as the years have gone by, people have noticed certain gaps, elisions, misinterpretations in his fieldwork, and so on and some of the native people whose stories he recorded early on in the 19th century. 
feel that they have been misrepresented because he, like he was just like a white guy from outside mm -hmm. taking notes, right, and recording all of their stories. Uh, I don't know whether you know this, but in North American Aboriginal communities, uh, stories are considered intellectual property in a way that we can't even dream of, despite mm -hmm. the fact that we think we have like we understand the notion of intellectual property and have copyright laws to protect it and so on and have notions of moral rights of the authors and stuff. I mean, that's, that's child's play compared to the role that stories play in oral cultures where they're actually owned by specific individuals and their families. So other people can't tell them without the permission? Absolutely of not. The stories have power. These stories would have been handed down through the generations. Exactly. The way to think of it is this. We live in a writing-based culture, and we have a whole bureaucratic and legal establishment that settles questions of land title, ownership, human relations, family structures, uh, systems of authority, systems of privilege, of indenture, of obligation, and so on. Mm -hmm. And we have a whole written legal framework, and if there's ever any dispute in our society in any one of those areas of human endeavor, and people can't reconcile it among themselves, what we do is avail ourselves of the law and the courts, and we argue in court, and a judge decides who's right and who's wrong, whatever issue is at stake, who really does own the land. In oral cultures, there is no written record, and so the stories are owned by individuals, they are performed actually and presented and performed on a regular basis and that process of telling stories at certain repeated ritual times is a way actually of making the story public. They have to get the permission of the person that owns the story to tell that story or Absolutely. not? Absolutely, yes. They do? Yes. And so what happens in an oral performance in an oral culture story is that the most important reason the story is told on certain very regular ceremonial occasions is to have the story accepted and reified by the community. Yes, that is true. Yes, we all accept that. Yes, that is the history of your family. Yes, those are the geographical areas that your family has the right to exploit and make a living on. Yes, that is your property. See, because there's no legal written record. So in order to establish those kinds of social relationships in an oral culture, you constantly have to re-perform the story publicly. Everyone in the community, and of course everyone in the community has their own story, and every family has their own story. Some of those stories are shared, like the creation story, for example, will be shared within a, a community. So yeah. everyone has the right to tell it. Yes, so yeah. everyone has the right to tell the creation stories mm -hmm. and so on. But when you move from prehistory into history in oral cultures, at that point, all the stories are owned. And I have to also say, in the prehistory stories, the stories of the creation of Transformer, of when people walked around in animal form and so on, you know, all the stories of coyote and raven and deer and so on, and even, you know, the rocks are seen as animated, the trees, those are shared stories. But even those stories are owned by the people that tribe? That, yes, that tribe, or that tribal group, let's mm -hmm. say, and beyond that, the linguistic group. Those are all owned. But if it, if it is told without permission, uh, we're sort of straying away from the social impact of one of the books you're most proud of, but to finish off, let's say another tribe start telling this story without permission, what happens then? Cause for war. That serious? Absolutely. And within the community, it's cause for physical conflict. These stories are property that is collectively protected by the community through 
have them confirmed and reified, it also gives people a chance to challenge them on those occasions. Right down to today. Yes, absolutely. Practically. Yes, and of course, stories are told in the framework of a recurring ceremonial occasion because there are all kinds of social conventions at play in those ceremonial conventions to mediate disputes that might arise. First of all, the obvious question is, was permission received from the native people who owned these stories to translate them into, into German and then English. Well, you see, that, that, that's really interesting because, of course, since it's, the f it's pretty much the first encounter with the native people and mm -hmm. these strange foreign colonials, these white people, the inclination among the people in the early days of anthropology in the Pacific Northwest is people were quite open about telling their stories yeah, yeah. because the stories described their world, social relations, what they owned, who they were, their status in the community. So they were quite anxious to tell these new foreigners who wanted their land, their stories. Because from their point of view, by telling their stories, they were laying claim to the land. They were describing land use patterns and ownership relations, right? So they were very anxious to tell these new colonials that this was theirs. But they didn't really say it in our language. They didn't say, get the hell off my property. No, because they, because we weren't there yet. But now they're saying, get the hell off my property. And we finally come to the reason I think the book is so great. The stories when Franz Boas originally collected them were quite freely given. And clearly given, one of the intents of giving them is to reify the people on their land. And Franz Boas recorded it all as kind of mythology, as mm -hmm. all early anthropologists did. They didn't mm -hmm. understand all those things we've been talking the, about. The practicalities of it. The practicalities, of the intellectual property aspects, and so on. So he just wrote, wrote it down as sort of myth, almost equatable with lies. Yeah, facts and myths. Yes, but the stories that the native people told Franz Boas were about facts, facts as they saw them and as they had preserved them within their oral culture. Mm -hmm. They were their library. So, of course, Franz Boas, who didn't understand the seriousness of what he was doing, often misinterpreted what people were saying or didn't understand like the real depth and meaning of what he was hearing and the implications of it, historic, political, and so on. So what the BC Indian Language Project, Randy and Dorsey, did is they took Franz Boas's fieldwork, and because they themselves were anthropologists and been going up and down the coast for 20 years. They hired an English translator. What they did is they translated into English. Then they took those stories that Franz Boas collected in the 1890s and a hundred years later went to every single village they could find, told the elders of the community what the stories were that Franz Boas had recorded and tried now with a vastly expanded understanding of what the meaning of these stories were. They actually checked the stories against the elders who still remembered the original wow. stories. And this process took 20 years to, to verify, to yeah, verify and expand on Boas's work, which of course the native communities were very eager to participate in because of course we all know about the current land claims issues. And BC is unique in that regard because BC doesn't have a single treaty with any Indian people at all. It doesn't exist. They mm -hmm. were just pushed aside and dispossessed. There are huge land claim issues going on now. And so the people actually welcomed Randy and Dorsey coming back and checking the stories because mm -hmm. they, they were giving them back their library. And in a lot of cases, some of those stories had been lost. Mm -hmm. So the, the book was reviewed fabulously in the major newspapers and by CBC and so on. And we were actually congratulated for publishing the book. 
I didn't need some reviewer to say this. I knew what we were doing all along. For literally giving these communities back their history. The forgotten stories. Yes. To me, that is what I want all our books to do, to have that kind of profound impact at every level, at the level of spirituality, at the level of socio-economic relations between people, community, history, and so on. And giving these stories back to the people and having a chance for them to correct them, amend them, or rediscover them if the elders who owned them had died it was a huge gift. They see it as a gift as opposed to, oh. this is my property, I want a piece of the action. Well, that, that may be the way they end up using it. But getting it back through this process that Randy and Dorothy took, they saw very much as a gift, yes. They were getting their own history back and their own legitimacy back and their own stories back. And they would see the value of the written word. Absolutely. What's the title again? It's called Indian Myths and Legends of the North Pacific Coast of America, which is the literal translation of Franz Boas's German title. And the reason it's, it's one of the books I'm most proud of having published, having listened to why and how I publish books, it's a book whose effect on the community, uh, or the communities, plural, is actually quantifiable. I can tell you how many First Nations got their culture back through this book. We are going to watch over the next hundred years, or however long it takes, these communities use these stories and their history that they've been given back now and been given the opportunity to correct. We're going to watch these communities use that information, those stories, in terms of how they structure and broker their relationship with colonial Canada. I mean, you can actually count the communities, the number of residents in the communities. We're going to watch the, the, you know, the land claims issues as they unfold in the courts. So eventually you will be able to actually quantify how many people, how many different cultures, how many different First Nations lives changed profoundly in their relationship to Canada and to the rest of the world by the fact that this book exists. Specifically how? Well, because now that those communities have had a chance to correct amend and reacquire their culture and their stories, which is their history, this is now going to inform their land claims issues with the province of BC, the government of Canada, and so on. How's it going to do that? Well, because one of the main purposes of the stories is they record the social consensus about which individual, family, or tribal group has the rights to land use. Oh, very specifically. Very specifically. Yes, by river, by portion oh of river, God. by ocean bay. Right? No wonder by, they're so interested well in it. Well, of course. These stories actually record oh in specific geographic detail and ecological detail which families, which individuals, which tribal groups have land use and occupancy rights in very specific, identifiable geographical <laughs> terms. So it's funny, you know, we start the conversation off about how this isn't about profit, and yet here's an example of a book that is going to be extremely useful to its subjects making money. Of course. I mean, we live in a world in which, you know, everything has its price. I am actually cynical enough to understand that. But I, but I don't believe in a world in which the economic consequences are the sole or even the main motivator for human action. Thanks very much. Well, thanks for having me. I've been speaking with Carl Siegler, 
who is the publisher of Talon Books in Canada. Thanks again. Thank you.